A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nai na te reo irirangi o aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome. As we get started, a warning. You may find this podcast confronting. It contains graphic descriptions. You'll hear about a subject most of us find hard even to contemplate, let alone speak of. We've watched Frida grow from uh, like a microscopic heartbeat to... To like a fully little fledged baby now. Yeah. And we see her, you know, every couple of weeks on the scan. The children I went on to um, to raise are certainly products of, I think, sadly, me as a as a grieving mother. I do wonder too if we get caught up in that hierarchy of well, a big life deserves big grief and a little life deserves a little bit of grief. I still was pretty committed to the idea of getting pregnant again. There was concerns, but I'm hold on to hope kind of girl. It's lovely to think that. It's going to be lived in by her, her little sister, and Ren will always be present. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is the unthinkable. If you haven't heard the story of Ren Arcus, head to the beginning of this series and listen from episode one, The Thunderstorm. Kate and Sam have started down the road of having another child while grieving for their daughter, Wren, who lived for just six days. Sam had become a father, which he hadn't been sure would happen for him. To realise it was happening to me and to us was quite... It was something I never really thought would ever happen until I met Kate. And then, yeah, it was just really exciting. The weeks after Wren's death were gut-wrenching. Like, throughout my life, that's how I have dealt with issues is just by getting drink, wasted getting wasted both of us both of us is how like <laughs> that's teenage like years that's what teenage 20s mm. most of our life that's that how is. we've <laughs> had dealt with issues is just by like and i guess it was sort of because we had Ren for such a fleeting moment that i wanted to sort of experience everything that i could to do with Ren, and that included being vulnerable to the pain that her memory caused. And I often felt like, you know, if I was going to just drink my way through it or just get completely wasted, that I would be tainting her perfect life, you know, and her absolute, like, innocence and beauty. And that gave me strength to, like, work at it and to get up every day and to, like... Going to counselling's hard. It's like it's so much easier to just lie in bed, but we we got up and we did it. And we for the first couple of weeks, I remember just coming home after a counselling session and just being absolutely shattered because it's like emotionally draining and it just takes it out of you. But we we had to do it, and being able to see hope and joy in life is the best way we can honour this amazing being that was Ren, you know? I also yeah. think that 
the drinking, you know, drinking, waking up with like whatever, a hangover or even the drinking, it just didn't stop. It didn't stop you thinking about no. Ren. It made it worse and it magnified it. And we were just kind of acutely aware of that. And also we wanted another baby. And that was a motivator to, to you know, obviously not drink. And I think that we just had to be pretty, I mean, from my perspective, you know, I've been kind of, you know, would would go out and, that's probably what people would refer to as a binge drinker. <laughs> I was, I mean, everyone, you know, everyone knows me, who knows me well, knows that I'm a party animal and that yeah. I like a drink and all that sort of thing. But I knew that actually I had to be a real adult about it and be responsible about it and actually that this was going to make it worse. This, even though in the instant it would be easier to be drinking, for me it was about making sure that Sam and I maintained our relationship as well and, you know. Yeah, you can get vicious when you're drinking, yeah. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> I can. And, 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 yeah, so it was just really, we just had to not do that. It was a choice. It was a real... Yeah, it was I a mean, cons- it's, it's like, you a know... A real concerted effort and choice not to do that. None of this year has come by accident. It's been work. You know, it's hard work. It's hard work, and it's and we get through it together, and we've got great support and stuff like that. But it is a concerted effort on the for both of us to just work at it. You know, and it's working out all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a couple of months after their baby daughter's funeral, Kate discovers they're expecting again. She's already returned to work. The nursery door is closed. They'd boxed up everything after Ren's death, but couldn't bear to go back in. I've got presents in there that I haven't unwrapped that people gave us to for Ren that I just, yeah. And we'll still use it and we'll leave it exactly the same. Yeah, and we still refer to it as Ren's room. Ren's room and it will be, in my mind, it would always be, it's going to be Ren and Frida's room when Frida comes here. Because, and that, and that is hard, like, I'm a quite a practical person and I want I like things squared away. So I liked having Ren's room all ready to go. Like me and my dad painted it and got it ready months before Ren was due and if I it's hard for me to want to do anything to that room because a part of me wants to hold on to it being Ren's room for as absolute long as possible because it is, we me and we did it up for Ren and we... I won't eat and I don't want it to be touched until we've got a baby to put in that. And it's, yeah, I just can't even stand the idea of just the heartbreak of, you know, it's not like I don't like going into her room because I do. I just don't even like the idea of... Building up the expectations. Um, yeah, yeah. And going in and sorting a room out um, again for the second time and not having someone to live in it. I just, yeah, I can't handle that. You'll remember psychologist Debbie Watkin from the last episode of The Unthinkable. Back in 1991... Her daughter, Terrell, was stillborn seven months into her first pregnancy. Having another baby after one has died is something she contemplated a generation before Kate and Sam. People talk about time being a healer. And I, I don't know, I have a quandary with that idea because time itself 
doesn't heal. I think it's what you do within that time that makes the difference. Um, but I still get back to the, it's the people within that time that make the difference, allowing, recognizing um, and acknowledging those traumas, those events, those celebrations. Within months, Debbie went on to have the first of two more children. After having such a cold and traumatic experience in hospital, a home birth felt right for her, but anxiety was high on the radar. The children I went on to, um, to raise are certainly products of, I think, sadly, me as a, as a grieving mother. I did get pregnant um, probably within about six or seven months after Terrell died. Um, and that was a very difficult pregnancy, um, not because anything went wrong, other than my heart wasn't, um, my heart was driving it and my head wasn't listening. And um, I was scared. I was, um, I didn't know when things had gone wrong. So I kept needing a lot more care from my midwife. Um, and I was fortunate and I had a wonderful midwife who really was there for me um, in every step and um, the support, including my mother actually at the birth. But he, he's a, our, our second child, um, I think is probably carrying the scars of, um, of our firstborn, um, the, the anxiety that I carried um, and still carry, I think he bore it. Um, we know about transmission of intergenerational trauma and I think he, he was certainly as an infant a very high needs baby, a very distressed, very anxious baby, but so was I. And so he just mirrored all of my um, anxiety. And I began, I had, I had achieved a live birth, but the whole idea of being caring for a live baby was completely a new, um, a new journey. Um, so that was a, a difficult, um, a difficult early years, and I remember feeling, um, gosh, this is what I wanted, but this is so hard, and that was a, a difficult place to be. Um, and then a, a, another baby, less than two years later, um, who again came in fighting and loud and strong, um, and a daughter, and that also um, treads lightly on our first daughter and so they both carry scars of what um, what was um, and and keep um, their older sister um, in there conscious and unconscious. Also last time on The Unthinkable we heard from social worker Pania Mitchell. Her second child Manaya had a heart condition which hadn't been picked up on scans. Pania's first son lived for two days and died on New Year's Day in 2008. She actively keeps his memory alive. Being Māori, I've always knew that we've had relationships with people like my tūpuna, ancestors, people that have passed away, even my grandparents. At that time they were alive then, but now they've passed away, like I have this a relationship. So I've always believed that I have a relationship with Manaya and that his contribution to my life was important. I believe in a relationship, an ongoing relationship. So, you know, maintaining, telling his story, talking about him, um, 
is is all a part of that process, including him in everything I do. Taking his photo with me, we do family camps, we've done lots of stuff in memory of him and him being important to my life and my family's life, even though he's not here anymore. Pania went on to have more children and knew that's what she wanted from early on after Manaya's death. I think I already had worked it out in my head that I wanted a kid, and I'm pretty sure that's pretty normal. So I was pretty committed to getting pregnant as quickly as possible. Even though it didn't happen that quickly, I still was pretty committed to the idea of getting pregnant again. You weren't frightened during that pregnancy? I... Or any subsequent ones? I was... I mean, definitely there was concerns, but I'm hold-on-to-hope kind of girl. It happened quickly for Kate and Sam. Kate's 35 now. She and Sam are sitting on the sofa in their weatherboard home, her hand cradling and gently rubbing her growing puku as they talk. Their second child, another daughter who they've called Frida, is due the same week Ren was, but one year on. When Kate got a positive pregnancy test, we went to see a doctor and the doctor said, yes, go have a viability scan, you know, protect yourself, you don't want to get false readings. So, like, from day, we've seen, we've watched Frida grow from, uh, like, a microscopic heartbeat to... To, like, a fully little-fledged baby now. Yeah. And we see her, you know, every couple of weeks on the scan. But this time round, there's to be no birthing unit, no deep breathing, no questions about whether there'll be an epidural or not. This time round, they're leaving no room for chance. Straight away, I always said, even before I got pregnant, if I get pregnant again, we're having it's going to be a really, really medical pregnancy and I am having a C-section at 38 weeks. The same midwives are looking after Kate during her second pregnancy, but for Frida, they're having obstetrician care too. We went with the obstetrician who actually delivered Ren, but she came in sort of like literally at the very tail end. She was part of the, the debriefing on the post-mortem. And it was because it just made it so much easier to go with her because she knew the history and she has been amazing at managing my anxiety. I think she probably sees us more than she has to, just because to, to kind of... Yeah. You know, help, yeah. you know, because I am really anxious. And I think Sam probably is as well. We don't probably don't acknowledge our anxiety too much to each other because <laughs> it's probably not a good thing, um, you know. Yeah. Um, and from the get-go, every couple of weeks we've had scans of her pretty much done. Done everything that we can possibly do. And from the beginning we've talked over every possible scenario. Like, it's hard because now our frame of reference is not, good to begin with so we're taking it's it's quite a different approach like we it was hard for me to get really excited and start thinking positively about it until we knew until like actually wasn't until we found out she was a girl and then I sort of let myself be happy and excited Mm -hmm. and start thinking about you know the future and even start talking together about what you know, stuff we're going to do with um, the baby because it was just, it was so hard to be positive. They realise how much, or actually how little, control you have. I felt useless for the whole ten months. Nine months? Ten months. Ten months. Like, because all I can do is 
sometimes cook dinner once a week vacuum you could do, you could you can cook you know i could than that, yeah though. i could but you know just <laughs> i could i can do this like this this stuff that's not i'm not helping or protecting oh you Kate were the baby. no yeah, no but, but physically i mean i know what you're saying but actually there are a lot of things that you do that you are actually very helpful to yeah but you still don't like yeah i felt for the whole whole pregnancy and the whole birth completely out of control and there was like nothing I could do and and that was really hard for me but then so did I and it's the same with you know this one it's sort of like you just don't have control over it you know it's and it's that's the hard that's the really hard thing about where we're at at the moment is that okay yes I'm 27, nearly 28 weeks pregnant. We're having a C-section in 10 weeks, you know, all being well, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. But our frame of reference is actually, it's not fine. And we had a perfectly, perfectly healthy baby. I had a perfectly healthy pregnancy. There was no warning signs, nothing. And, and then we lost her. The weeks tick by. While Sam and Kate are apprehensive, They're also excited for the future. But as they prepare to welcome a new child, their grief for Wren is still raw. We talked several times across Kate's second pregnancy for the unthinkable, and something struck me when I was driving home from one of those interviews. Kate and Sam, they love each other. They have their home, they have their dog, Bam. But their world has shrunk, and they're kind of isolated. It's incredibly lonely, and which is one of the motivators behind us wanting to do this. Because for people who who this might happen to again, it is. Yeah, it's horrible. How do you explain that? And people are just sort of like get awkward when you tell them, and you know you can never explain what it was. What it was like. I mean, I still can physically remember when Ren took her last breath and us having to say, "Turn off the machine," you know. Yeah, and it's and it uh, yeah, it is incredibly. Like, people are lovely and, like, really, you can see the grief in your friends and your family for about two weeks after something like this happens. And then it sort of disappears out of people's lives, but it doesn't disappear out of our life. No, just things like how many granddaughters there are. Well, actually, there are five. And that kind of thing. It's just, yeah, it is. It it is. It's it's really lonely. And it's... You know, even with the most understanding friends and family, it's, it's like, I just can't even explain the emptiness I felt. Yeah, it was just awful. But then at the same time, there have been, you know, I've made some really lovely connections with um, a few people who have been through very, very similar experiences and lost, and lost children. Um, and it's, you know, it's surprising how often that happens and people just don't talk about it. And which is why it seems like probably such a lonely experience. And I think I said this probably at the start of our, when we started interviewing, who wants to talk about dead babies? No one wants to talk about dead babies, yeah. which is why we don't as a society talk about them. And which is why people go through just so much torment and hell. And I can completely understand why couples break up after they lose a child. Yeah. Nobody talks about it. There's stigma and shame. Debbie Watkin echoes this. After we spoke, she emailed me 
to say that trauma is not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you. She says maybe because this subject is still so sensitive or awkward to talk about, or because we tend to want to band-aid each other's hurts, just fix it and make it all better, we're inclined to push it aside and move on too quickly. Debbie went on to say, offering somebody the chance to tell their story, share their thoughts, or just talk and be listened to can be the real gift of healing kindness. She recommends slowing down, supporting, connecting, offering quiet and empathy, even just starting with a comment like, wow, that sucks, tell me about it. Or, I'd love to hear your story. It's one of our last taboos. That's how Vicky Culling, the former chair of the charity Sands, sees it. 30 years ago, we never talked about cancer. That was the C word. And look at it now. And a lot of people have done a lot of hard work to raise the profile of cancer. And I think, OK, so maybe I'm just on that road and maybe we've still got another five or ten years. But that's five or ten years of people in pain grieving in a culture that isn't really understanding. So how do I, what can I do to make a difference? And this podcast is one of the ways that we can do that. You know, it's letting people know that babies die. It does shake the foundations of your life. It makes you a different person. It's fine to love that baby in absence. It's fine for our friends and families to be loving that baby in absence. There's a saying that, you know, every baby forever changes the world. And um, I do wonder too, if we get caught up in that hierarchy of, well, a big life deserves big grief and a little life deserves a little bit of grief. Because our brains are wired to do all of that, to categorise and classify, and we see big things as important and little things as not as important. So maybe that's one of the reasons why baby loss is not seen as, as important. While pregnancy is emotional at the best of times, this time round has been tougher for Kate and Sam. Sadness. It's just really sadness. And I don't think I'm angry anymore, which I'm really pleased I'm not angry about, but angry because I think, you know, I'm someone who holds on to things and it's taken a lot for me to really, to really let go of it because I felt, I felt like I had to let go of it because I didn't want to be carrying that round when we brought Frida into this world because she's her own person and she deserves her own start without this hanging over her. And so that I'm really, really cognizant of that. I still get quite angry sometimes when I just see horrible people who succeed in life really <laughs> makes me angry. Yeah, but I'm like, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And I used to get a little bit angry about it, but now it's just like that is not fear yeah. and like how unfair the world is and how... Life is a roll of the dice and some people win and some people don't. You know, I just spend a lot of time at home these days and actually it was about protecting myself. You know, not having to have awkward conversations with people. We just sort of have been a real homebody. It's hard for Kate because pregnancy should be this wonderful thing. But for Kate, it's this... 10 month marathon run that she's got to do and she's got to do it with this incredible baggage that we have you know even the things that we should be completely happy with aren't 
100% happy anymore. You know, Kate should have baby showers and... I didn't have a baby shower I know, last time. Last I'm time glad I didn't know. You know. And I wouldn't have, definitely wouldn't have one this time. But, but you should have that option and that should, option yeah. shouldn't be, oh, would you feel bad because you lost your yeah. baby kind yeah. of thing. I don't, yeah, I don't have that kind of joyfulness. You know, just yeah. feeling life and yeah. stuff. I do feel, I, yeah, mean, I feel yeah. really, I mean, I tell you, I love feeling this baby kick. Nothing makes me feel better um, than feeling her kick and move. But it's not the same. I don't have the same sort of excitement about it. And maybe that's, you know, some people would say, well, I didn't feel that way about in the second pregnancy or whatever. But yeah, you know, I feel envious of people who got to go through all that and came out with a healthy baby. Yeah, I feel really envious. And I am a mum. That's the thing. I am a mum and I just don't have a child. And with three weeks to go, Kate finished up at work and stepped back out of the office and into the unknown. I actually cried when I left the office because it was really overwhelming because it was almost a year to the day that I had been finishing up for Ren. And it felt weird. It felt strange. And I know everyone wanted to wish me well, but I just all I could think of was, God, I hope I don't see you for a year. I hope I don't see you for a year. I hope I don't have to do this and come back in two months time because something goes wrong with a baby like it did last time. So it was really, it was quite overwhelming. And I didn't, I don't think I had really kind of realised how much it would hit me when I, when I left. As the date of the planned birth gets closer, the anniversaries of Wren's birth and death are also looming. You know, all being well, we're having a C-section on the 4th of September and Wren's birthday was the 8th of September. That's a really massive set of emotions that both Sam and I will be going through. At the same time, I will be have, I will have had a you know baby, and all I can think about is what I went through last time and being in that hospital. Yeah, it's with Ren when it was the, like three weeks to go. We were we're just excited. We were excited, and we were also like prepared. We had everything all ready to go, everything all lined up, and this time it's. We haven't got to that stage. We haven't. I mean, for, we haven't yeah. packed any bags. We haven't. I can't um, bring myself to pack a bag. Actually, yeah. it seems ridiculous. I just feel like I'm jinxing something if I try and do something that prepares for a future that might not actually happen. Like, because it was so painful last time, putting that stuff away, packing without having a baby in it. It's like, are we? Are we just making going to make it worse for ourselves by doing it? I mean, for example, this time last year, I was making lots of food, like soups and risottos and all that kind of stuff and freezing it so we would eat. We could have we would have something healthy to eat after she'd arrived, you know, because we'd be really tired and all that stuff. And then she died and we just had all this food, you know, this freezer full of food and didn't want to eat it, you know. It took me back to the time when I was pregnant and looking forward to having this family and then it just disappeared. So it's so... I don't even, you know, I don't even care if we've got nothing in our cupboards or mm. anything like that. I don't even want to go into Ren's room to check what we've got. I know that we have everything because we had everything last time. It's just a matter of where, where it is. Is, and is that it sort clean? Of thing. And, and God, I mean, if we have to spend like a couple of hours looking for stuff yeah. and have a healthy baby, then I'd rather just do that. It's really weird. It's a really hard thing to convey around how I feel about this pregnancy because you know, obviously I love Ren and she was my baby. I also love this baby, but we wouldn't be having this baby if Ren hadn't died. And it's a re- that's a really complex set yeah. of emotions to have. They begin to feel the fear 
it really scares me about if something happens to this baby. And I, oh yeah, like I don't know that, how that, we would. Yeah, I don't know how, how we would. Because we, we was just talking to Kate before. It was like you can see how people just give up. And really? Fall apart. I mean, God, I think I look back and I think, how did I even get through these last twelve months? Like, honestly, how do you even get through work? I went back to work about six weeks after Rand died, which was at the time mm. it felt right, but now it feels incredible that I went back so soon. And what really scares me is being back in like that hospital room. It just really scares me, yeah. and I just don't. I don't want to feel like that again. Are you kind of finding it hard? to visualise what it will be like when this baby is born and you're in the hospital for a couple of days because you don't you don't have that experience. You're, you you associate babies in hospital with something very different. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely an element of me if that I can... I do have this kind of probably romantic ideas of like being skin to skin and all that kind of thing, but at the same time, it always has comes with this like panic of why am I kidding myself? This could go really, really wrong again because, you know, it, it could. So it's it's always like a double-edged sword. Yeah, self-preservation comes in. You don't want to... I find that quite interesting because I always thought, oh, generally positive guy, but it's hard to open yourself up to knowing how incredibly devastating it can be. When I think about her arriving, one of the things we've been warned about with C-sections because we're having her at 38 weeks is that because obviously she hasn't come through the birth canal... Their lungs can be a little bit funny, so they need some air and stuff like that. So they've warned us there might be all that kind of stuff. Just the thought of that and what it's going to feel like sitting in the bed, being completely unable to hold her or touch her like like what happened last time, but being, you know, operated on and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's really scary. Yeah. While they're trying to look on the bright side, Kate has a nagging feeling that something's not quite as it should be. This part of me that feels like it just, something's got to go wrong. And it's a really awful negative, and I am quite cynical and negative anyway, but it is, part of me feels like, oh, something's bound to go wrong, you know? And I just, yeah, I really we, want to be positive. You know, we, we used to keep saying, oh, we're due for a break, we're due for a break, and now we're just like, oh, a break's never coming, so might as well bloody accept it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Life is just shit. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, you know, I mean, we should really temper the fact that life, you know, we don't think that we have a... We don't think we have a bad... And as they get closer to the due date, they realise while Ren's room had in some ways been a no-go zone, it's starting to shift. It's lovely to think that it's going to be lived in by her, her little sister and that, you know, I mean, Ren will always be a presence and we will, you know, she'll always, we'll always tell the kids, uh, well, I say kids, this this one, um, about Ren and that sort of thing, and she's always going to have a presence in our lives. I think we mention Ren more in the last couple of weeks. I've, I definitely thought that she's been more involved in my thought process about having two daughters and how Frida's always going to have a big sister and stuff like that. Yeah, it wasn't until, like, the other day I sort of said something about put it in the girls' room, which yeah. was really which was a really kind of like weird feeling to think because, you know, it was nice. Because you always called it Ren's room, but I guess it's... Ren and Frida's, yeah. Yeah. And it'll always be Ren and Frida's room. Frida's another chance for Kate and Sam, but they find it hard to grapple with their history. It's just really easy to start a narrative where Ren didn't exist. You know, just things like, for example, when I, you know, go to hydrotherapy on Friday mornings and everyone was always asked, oh, you know... 
is this your first baby? Is this your second baby? All that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and I don't want to say, no, this is my first baby. I would say this is my second baby. And then I always inevitably get asked, well, how old's your other baby? And, um, you know, I have to say, well, she died when she was a week old. And then the conversations usually just end there. And then or some people might try and push it and find out what happened, which is awkward. And, you know, that's like, well, actually it was a problem during labor. So maybe we don't want to talk about that right now, given that you're about <laughs> to go into labor at some point. If I allow it to not talk to talk about her just because it makes people's lives easier and more comfortable, then she just ceases to exist. And I just like yeah. that, that does oh, not, yeah. I can't, I can't stomach that because she did. She was part of our family. She was our firstborn. When someone who's old passes away, they've left behind them like tangible things like children or great feats of things. But when a baby dies, it's so easy for them to be almost erased from yeah. history because the only thing that they've, contributed is completely untangible. But they're beginning to think what it'll be like to have baby Frida in their lives after she's born. I've been like freaking out because I apparently like you're supposed to have the room at like 18 degrees is like the perfect room for a temperature. For a baby I'm like I'm pretty sure her house has never been at 18 degrees (laughs) and so I'm like trying to figure out how to get a room to 18 degrees and monitor it. It's weird though because the stuff that freaks you out just totally doesn't freak me out and stuff that freaks uh, yeah, me, totally it doesn't doesn't freak, freak, yeah. which is good so yeah which is good because we kind of like yeah. balance each other off so what freaks you out oh like get scared about her being left in a hot car or being hit by an suv in a driveway <laughs> or attacked by a dog when we're out walking i know and it's just it's ridiculously crazy things which doesn't no that out. stuff doesn't freak me out because I don't know why, because I, I, I don't think see those things happening. But I'm like, what if the room is 16 degrees, not 18? What if I don't do the nappy on tight enough? I think we both agree that the probably the initial days of her sleeping will be freaky. Will be yeah, like I I can't like I don't know how I'm going to be able to sleep and not constantly want to monitor her because mm-hmm. we know how fragile life is i think the other thing that worries me as well is that i don't want this baby to be entitled either but it's going to be quite hard to not probably take me a long time to kind of get comfortable with being a mother to be honest but the one thing i would say is i don't think i'll mind her crying at all i mean i no, say that now I can't. I, yeah <laughs> but i think you know i can't even explain what it was like to not hear her cry at all and to hear to explain what relief it will be when they do when when this baby cries and yeah. when if she cries up and wakes up all the time and all that sort of stuff it kind of means that she's you know well it just means she's alive and yeah. breathing and all that sort of thing so and to change like a a pooey nappy would be just the best yeah you know and and do all those things that and be tired because your baby's keeping you awake would yeah be absolutely great but before that, they've got three weeks to get through. Watch lots of Netflix. Um, I probably won't read. I'd like to pretend I'd read something, but I'm not going to read anything. I'm too tired to read. <laughs> Kate's knitting lasted about a week oh, and yeah, then she I, gave up. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. I probably spent a lot of time looking on the internet at clothes I want to buy post-pregnancy. Because uh, <laughs> you've been pregnant for like two years. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Because being pregnant... Like one at a go is hard enough. 
oh, it's been really tough on my body. And I think that's the reason my I've got like things like sciatica and carpal tunnel and things like that was because my, you know, I was two months between having Ren and then getting pregnant again. You know what emotional roller coaster pregnancy is. I actually think I've been pretty good up until the last few weeks when I've just been in so much pain that I've just been really easily agitated by everybody. And you're already easily agitated. Yeah, though. I am at most most days easily <laughs> agitated, but even worse now. And my boss described me as grumpy from Tatahi Bay the other day. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I am actually. Yeah. I am really grumpy. So, yeah, there's a lot riding on this baby. <laughs> so she better be good. <laughs> So I think we're recording here. Um, let me see, 16th of August, um, just coming up to half past three in the afternoon. It's Wednesday. I've just been in the supermarket doing the shopping and I've had a message from Kate. My phone pings, I get a message from Kate. And I'm a little bit blown away by it. Um, the message says, uh, we have a new twist for the podcast. It turns out we're actually having a boy. Um <laughs> And there's an exclamation mark on that, and I'm I'm not surprised. Kate is, she goes on to say it's quite a shock. Yeah, but it is. Um, but good they find out now and not at the birth. And I guess this is so important because for months and months they have thought they were having another wee girl. They've built a relationship. They've invested a lot in this. Um, you know, a lot is riding on this baby and who she is. And so I guess if Frida's not Frida, um, with what, a couple of weeks to go, I think, till the C-section, something like that, who's, who is he? Who's this wee boy? That's next time on The Unthinkable. The Unthinkable is a podcast series by RNZ. It's available on the RNZ website in the podcasts and series section and on all the podcasting apps, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Please subscribe and rate us. The Unthinkable was written and presented by me, Susie Ferguson, and produced by Liz Garton. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin. It was engineered by William Saunders. My thanks to Kate Gudsell, Sam Arcus, Pania Mitchell... Debbie Watkin and Vicky Culling for this episode. Kakiteano. Botox Cosmetic, Adobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.